Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, since that belong, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's uh, invite Mike up to deliver God's word. Thanks, Fred. Morning, everybody. It's always a challenge uh, for me to prepare for a sermon. And since uh, I've been hanging out with Sam more and more, it's, <clears throat> it's remarkable how well and effectively and efficiently he can prepare a sermon in a week. It took me like five weeks <laughs> to prepare this sermon. And so, but, you know, that he has much more experience and it comes with time. Uh, let's bow our heads and go into the time of prayer before uh, we dive in. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Um, we thank you for this Sabbath rest Thank you for allowing us uh, just the openness to come before you. May we come humbly, knowing that we are sinful, uh, but knowing that in you we have forgiveness, in you we have reconciliation, in you we are made holy and righteous. Lord, open our hearts to receive the words uh, you are ready to speak to us. May we have the ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> So Sam mentioned last week that uh, Jesus usually approached people in sympathy. We were talking about how Jesus is the better high priest and he can sympathize. And there were occasions for rebuke or what Sam calls the get-it-together moments. 
Jesus had a few get-it-together moments amongst his disciples, and so did the Apostle Paul in his letters to the churches. So far, we've seen in Hebrews uh, the author's sympathetic plea to, the, to advocate that Jesus is better. But our passage today is his get-it-together moment of this letter. And so we've been going through the book of Hebrews and understanding that Jesus offers us a better solution to all of life's expectations. Jesus is the better word who brought forth and sustains all creation. He is the better king, and all things are subject to him and placed under his submission. He rules with righteousness, mercy, and justice. He came as the humble king and became a brotherly king and the great priestly king who takes away all of our sins. He is the better rest in whom we find lasting rest that takes away the yoke of the world. He removes our anxieties and the burdens of worldly expectations and places on us instead his everlasting peace through the work of Christ. He's our better high priest who sympathizes with our temptations because he resisted all temptations. And today we affirm that only Jesus offers us the assurance of better things. That is the hope of our salvation. And we're going to talk about how our Christian maturity relates to that. I feel, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel that uh, these days there's a lack of emphasis on what it means to be mature. Instead, uh, a lot of us in the Western world, we're kind of more obsessed with remaining childlike. Many of you remember uh, Toys R Us's jingle. It says, I don't want to grow up. I want to be a Toys R Us kid. I said, I don't want to grow up because if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid, right? You guys remember that? Uh, There's a story of Peter Pan, the boy who would never grow up. And there's a new Disney ad that I've seen, I've been seeing on YouTube, and their tagline is, the world tells you to grow up, but here you don't have to. So what is the the sense that uh, these messages are giving to us, giving to the people, it's that growing up or maturing, it's not voluntary. It's not part of life. It's this thing that we do begrudgingly as we age one year older. Growing up, it's unnecessary. It's dull. It makes us less childlike. It sends the message that growing up into mature childhood sucks away the joy from us. Another metaphor, think Footloose, the movie. Are, are you the, uh, the rigid pastor that wouldn't allow dancing in the town? Or do you want to be the Kevin Bacon that dances in the warehouse? Maturity is too rigid, too restrictive. This is what the world tells us. And now we have an epidemic of multiple generations of people who not only don't know what maturity is, but also reject maturity. We're averse to maturity. But the problem is when we're in community, regardless of it being Christian or not, we require maturity for peace and love. But not only that, we require Christian maturity to remain Christians, to remain believers and followers of Christ. 
And today I'm going to unpack what the author means about maturity and what is the consequence for not striving after maturity and what we receive for striving after maturity. So what is maturity? What's the consequence for not having maturity and what we gain from maturity? So as Fred read our passage today, there are three parts to this section. Verses 11 to 14 is the author pointing out the, the listener's shortcomings. Chapter 6, 1 to 8 is a warning. It's a caution against continued downfall. And 6, 9 to 6, 12 is the exhortation to stay on course. So the first part of the passage begins with a rebuke. The author of Hebrews, he's talking about the great high priest, uh, Jesus as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he literally stops in the middle of his letter and he says, I want to tell you more about this, but I can't because you're too dull in hearing. The NIV translation says they're too slow of learning. It can also mean sluggish or languid, someone who is unhurried. Basically, they become lax with exercising their faith, and they've become dull in hearing, which means they used to not be. They used to be excited. They used to be passionate and zealous and fervent for the gospel. The example that I can come up with uh, is kind of like a new football season. At the beginning of every football season, Every team is undefeated. They're oh no, nobody is lost. And the players for every team, they're uh, very excited for this new season. And they all have, they all think that they're, they made good drafts, there's good trades, and so they think that they can go to the playoffs or the Super Bowl. But as the season progresses, we know that uh, one thing is sure. There are teams that certainly do like contenders, but then there are also those teams that kind of look like the stinkers of the season. Uh, and for the team with the losing or a mediocre record, that initial fire and passion slowly dwindles. And then there's a certain point when uh, the talk might go from maybe we'll sneak into the playoffs as a wild card, and we can go on a roll. But that, or, it, and then it goes to the other side is, well, there's always next season. It's kind of like you've given up hope, right? And it's that sliver of in-betweenness that becomes a make-or-break moment, and it's these moments and how they respond that determines the rest of the season. And the coach comes in to remind them of what their goal is, what their prize is. And the part of that could be, let's get it together. Let's keep going. And this is the place where these believers are also in. They were at one time captivated by the good news of Jesus Christ about this salvific message. But now as they face persecution and some backlash, their outlook seems more and more bleak. Their enthusiasm is dwindling and are in need of a wake-up call. For the last several weeks as we've been going through Hebrews, for the listeners of this letter, 
uh, it shouldn't be a shock because the author has been slowly rousing them up from their sleep. In chapter 2, he says, pay close attention to the message you've heard, lest you drift away. In 3.1, he says, consider Jesus. 3.8, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. 3.12, take care, lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. 4.1, fear, lest you fail to enter God's rest. 4.11, be diligent to enter God's rest, lest you fall by disobedience. And in 4.14, it says, hold fast to your confession. He reminds them to hold fast to their confession. And that will be significant to what comes ahead in the letter. So there were these words of caution, but now the author is clearly calling them out of where they are and where they are headed. The words that the author goes from exhortation to rebuke, it's like when you rebuke a child, uh, discipline a child. Uh, you can, I guess, teach your child and say, be careful, look both ways before crossing the road. Watch out, there are cars coming. Don't forget to look at the road signs. After a while, you just say, hey, you're not, what did I say? You're not listening. So it's, it's kind of remarkable that uh, the author took this long to come to a rebuke. He cautions him seven times before this rude awakening. The audience has become dull and slow of learning and hearing, and they haven't progressed and matured. Instead, they're on the verge of destruction. So what is maturity? The writer of Hebrews uses the metaphor of milk and solid food. Who drinks milk? It's usually infants. And just to make sure the audience knew exactly what the writer meant, he says it plainly. Everyone who lives on milk is a child. Other translations use the word infant. And in English, when we think of infants, we usually think of little chubby babies with chubby cheeks, super cute. Another uh, thought that enters our mind about infants is innocence. And that's the way that Peter uses it in his letter when he says, when he refers it to the pure milk of the word. And that's reserved for new believers. The milk here in our passage still refers to the pure milk of the word. But it's used in a condescending way not to refer to the content of the word, but the receivers of the word. The milk are things that they've already heard and should know by heart because they learned it. There's, uh, there's a, a process of catechesis or three years of classes that these early believers go through. So they should know all of this already. And instead of being affected and convicted and transformed by it, they continue to remain in a stage of infancy where they, where they still need to hear it. So why? What, what prevents them from moving forward? The author says that they're stuck on the elementary things. That is the knowledge of salvation by Christ alone through faith alone. But that's it. The fact that the author points out that they ought to be teachers but are not tells us that they don't lack intellectual knowledge nor the information. They have everything necessary to be teachers. They're given everything 
to move on. But there is no transformation. There is no drawing near, as Sam mentioned last week. They lack the zeal to change. The author says the solid food is the word of righteousness, which involves discerning good from evil. This has to do with moral and ethical discerning. Another way to put it is striving toward righteous living. He's saying, you know that Christ is our Savior. He heals and forgives all our sins. But let's move on from the need to continuously seek forgiveness from the same sin over and over again. The ability to discern good from evil is to go on from our sinful lives and move on to a life of persevering through our temptation and seek righteousness in our lives. We heard last week that Jesus is our better high priest because he's the only one without sin because he resisted all temptations. And therefore, he can perfectly sympathize with our real challenge of resisting temptations. But since Jesus is also our better and best model and we are to look to him and imitate him, then the way to a proper Christian living is for us to go on to a life of resisting temptations. And that is maturity. In the Greek, the word mature has a connotation of moral and spiritual perfection. And this should be very familiar to us, and it should be very familiar to the audience of this letter. Because Jesus himself commands us in Matthew 5.48, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word used in the Greek for in Matthew and Hebrews here, it's the exact same word. So this word for perfect is also the word for mature. And so as they hear this letter, as they hear this word, their ears should be itching because they, they know this word and they know what the author is calling for. He's saying, be mature, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is mature and perfect. Instead, the believers are called out for committing the same dead works, works that lead to death or sin again and again, and repenting. Not to say repenting is bad. Repentance is good. And we see that it's the fundamental element in our Christian living. Even we ourselves just went through a corporate and private time of confession. We should come before the throne of grace, humbly, knowing that we are sinners. But we also ought to be resolute to say, not again. It's not, oh, not again. Or, oops, I did it again. No, but with confidence, we should be, no, not again. With God's help, no longer will I commit this sin. Many of us might be struggling with something that's been plaguing us for a long time. I do. We all do. And we pray and we seek God and we pray again. But sometimes there's just certain things that linger and continue to tempt us, continue to be a hurdle for us. But over time, it lessens because God is there. Sometimes I pray, God, why won't you just 
take this temptation away from me. Just zap me and free me of it. But I think, I suppose that we won't learn what it means to persevere in those moments. Not to say God can't do that for certain people, but if it's not one thing, it's going to be another. And sin has a way of deadening our our hearts. Though we repent, if there's no effort in curbing our certain sinful behaviors, instead of our hearts burning against the sin, it can actually lead us more astray. And so there's going to be an element of challenge for all of us that God will want us to learn to resist. One sign of maturity is that we recognize a sin that comes up again and again in us and certainly repent, but understanding that we are called to perfection, we must make efforts to leave that sin behind forever. As we read in our prayer today, Paul eloquently summarizes for us, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So what makes them dull in hearing? There's a bridge between learning something and moving on to maturity. And it's that element of mastering something through practice and training. It's pointed out in verse 14. Maturity is not this switch or this Amazon easy button that you just press and it's done. It's not like yesterday you're a child and you flip the switch, today you're an adult, mature adult. It doesn't work that way. The word trained embodies this meaning of vigorous exercise not just in the body, but also in the mind. And the word practice is the power acquired by use, forming a habit of body and mind. So it's this element of both body and a mind. And uh, there's passage that says, we put our flesh into submission. And it is through continuous practice, continuous training. Those who do sports or uh, instrument would know that We're not made athletes in a day. Uh, I know that as I climb. I can't climb certain things because it takes a lot more training. It takes a lot more practice uh, to either grab certain holds or move my body in a way that I'm not used to. I play the guitar a little bit, but not like Fred or Peter. I know just enough to sing the songs that I want to. I remember teaching a couple of people in China how to play the guitar, and the hardest part is like the first couple of weeks where they're trying to train their fingers to hold the strings. And this is like, I feel like this is the part where children kind of just give up, because it hurts so much. It hurts so much to hold those strings hard to make them vibrate and not make it sound like, I don't know, uh, hitting a piece of metal, right? But it's going through those moments. It's persevering through those moments of seeking to master it. And it's the same thing with temptations. Though we might be in the body of an adult, 
our mind, if it's not trained and brought into submission to the spirit, it has to have childish tendencies. In the news, Hong Kong held a, recently held a parliament about an extradition bill and a brawl broke out. These are men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, fighting, punching and pushing one another because of a disagreement. I remember one year after college when I went back to my parents' church where I also used to attend high school uh, youth group. There was a controversy with the adult congregation. It got so bad that in certain weeks they had to call the police to come over to keep the peace. And I remember seeing my junior high Bible study teacher. He was, I don't know if you've ever seen like middle-aged Korean men yelling. Like they were, he, he was just yelling at the top of his lungs at another older gentleman. And, you know, when we see things like this, doesn't that kind of make us cringe? Uh, doesn't it make you feel a little embarrassed? I certainly felt embarrassed. We had the local police come to our church you know, so that there's no fights breaking out. Um, and so no wonder Paul had to question the Corinthian church too. You know, when you... When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do we not have the maturity to know how to keep the peace amongst ourselves? This is the example of the effect of not training and practicing our moral faculties. So what's the consequence of not <coughs> having maturity in ourselves, corporately? We've seen it corporately. Uh, lack of self-resistance, lack of self-control. Those are just one of the several things. But for the individual, uh, it becomes much more grave, as we'll see here in this passage, the author hints at it previously in chapter 2, says, pay close attention to the message you've heard, lest you drift away. And in 4.11, he says, be diligent to enter God's rest, lest you fall by disobedience. So the author already has in mind the grave consequence of falling away for not paying attention and not being diligent. And unless they get on with the elementary things of Christ, they're susceptible to falling away to the point where they cannot be restored to repentance. They're not quite there, but this is a real shock in the system for choosing perseverance over falling away. This phrase, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, could have many of us scratching our heads or leave a bad taste in our mouth. What does it mean that it's impossible for those who fall away to repent? There are several arguments that might be of interest to you, and we can discuss it more after the sermon. Uh, but the key word here is fallen away. Again, I'm going back to the Greek, and it's explicitly talking about someone who deviates from the right path, someone who wanders away one who falls away from the worship of God. So it's not that Christ would choose to, 
that Christ would close the door on us. For in the Gospels, he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belong to such as these. Christ receives all who come to him with childlike faith. And elsewhere he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, Christ would never close the door on those who are actively and humbly seeking. Remember, repentance is part of the elementary teachings of Christ where we acknowledge our sinfulness and separation from God and Christ as the only way through forgiveness of sins that can right the broken relationship with God. Rather, it's impossible to restore, to bring again to repentance for those who reject God, those who reject Christ. And the passage says, though they experience all the goodness of Christ, if they themselves decide that Christ is not worth it, that it is not better than what he or she can achieve, then he cannot be restored to repentance. One commentator puts it this way, our author is suggesting that to commit apostasy or to fall away is to publicly shame Jesus as well as snuff out one's personal relationship with him. The one who falls away puts himself at enmity against Christ. He would again be the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers to hold Christ in contempt and scorn and disdain and disrespect the person and work of Christ and gladly put him up on the cross, mocking him and cursing him because he believes what he's found in Christ is phony. This is the danger of not moving on to maturity. It prevents us from discerning what is good from evil. We would just as easily remain in our blindness to our sin because we choose to ignore the waywardness of our behavior against God's holiness. Or we would prefer to believe what the world says about a certain thing is better than what the Bible teaches us. Let me try to make it a little more relatable. I'm sure we've all seen, many of us have seen the first Matrix movie. There's a character named Cypher. He was part of the resistance with the human beings against the robots or the machines. He stood side by side with Neo and Morpheus and Trinity, yet he was dissatisfied. He became familiar with the life in the Matrix, and he wanted to live in that life as if that was the real life. And there's a, a scene where he's sitting with the agent, and he's about to make a deal for handing over Neo into their hands so that he can be put back into the matrix. And the famous line is, they're sitting around at a dinner table at a restaurant over a plate of steak. And he says, as he's cutting, he says, you know, I know the steak doesn't exist. I know when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. 
Doesn't that kind of sound familiar? Someone who walked with the one, who experienced his fellowship, sat by his feet and learned of him intimately, yet he was drawn away by the prospect of worldly things. It's the story of Judas. We don't know the fate of Cypher, <clears throat> but Judas, even though he realized what he had done was, was heinous, he couldn't bring himself to repentance. Instead, sadly, he took matters into his own hands and hung himself on a tree, again trying to gain freedom on his own accord instead of depending on Christ. So there's nothing light about this caution, this warning, and this prospect of permanently falling away. The author is saying, this is literally the choice between eternal life and eternal death. But some would rather choose ignorance and live in blindness. They would rather place their hope on something else, something lesser, something that's false and temporary. Friends, where is your hope placed? Where is our hope placed? Is it in the things of this world? Or is it in Christ alone? We, we would beg you to consider hard. Consider the refreshment and the life of the life-giving word. Consider the experience of accepting Christ as your Savior. Consider the salvific message and the ways that the Holy Spirit guided you. Maturity through practice and training is the antidote to falling away. It's the means of holding firm to our faith. The foundation of our faith is built on the elementary doctrine of Christ. But the walls and the structure and the roof of our faith is built up through maturity. And the concrete walls are gradually raised up and made thicker through practice and training of our moral faculties. Without it, our faith houses would just as easily collapse under the weight of the winds of temptation. The other difficult thing to consider is how do we respond to those who have potentially denounced their faith, who once considered themselves Christian? I would say don't let those instances deter you from seeking Christ. Instead, seek Christ even harder. We can ask that they truly experience God's grace. Were they saved? How can they reject their faith? All these things are out of our hands. Ultimately, it's between themselves and God, who is the final judge. What we can say is that we know who is saved by those who persevere and remain in Christ until death. But how should it make us feel? I think there's two things that should make us feel. One should be frightened. We should be frightened because the passage says it is an act that none can be restored from. It's not that God refuses to do so. No, it's because the persons themselves refuse to do so. If they have been enlightened by the salvific message, tasted the heavenly gift of salvation through grace, and have shared in the Holy Spirit in fellowship, 
tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, yet they renounce God, isn't it because they've actively chosen their own solution as righteous rather than the truth of the word? Hence, even at the face of God's grace and wonderful mercy, they would refuse it because they cannot accept the ways of God. And the second way that it should make us feel is sad and mournful for those who would choose themselves over God because we know their fate. Even they know their fate because it's written right here in the passage. And yet they would still disregard it. We should mourn not only because we have no power to save them, but also because we failed as a church to retain the members of the church. Therefore, our Christian fellowship is so important for exhorting one another and sharpening one another into hope and against apostasy. Jesus uses the parable of the seeds to make this more emphatic. The sower casts seeds into various types of ground, one being the rocky soil. The seed that fell there grew quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the days got hot, it could not stand the test of time because its roots were shallow and was not supported by the richness of the soil that lies deep in the earth. Let's consider the words and imagery of Psalm chapter 1. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. When we enrich ourselves in the words of God daily, because a tree doesn't take in water today and stops tomorrow, no, the tree that's planted by the water drinks it up every day, every hour, every minute of the day. And then and only then do we find that we can persevere even in the most tumultuous of times and the driest seasons of our lives. Those who don't continue on to maturity, they will become dull in their hearing and neglect to seek the deeper things of Christ. And when, they're, when the time comes for their faith to be tested, they are susceptible of withering away. They will be blown away like chaff in the wind. The saints in this passage, in the book of Hebrews, are experiencing persecution, and they're being challenged externally. But the author challenges them the same. Will you withstand the test of time? He says, don't, res- don't succumb to the easy fix. And when persecution and hardship comes for us, will we stand the time? So what do we gain from striving after maturity? It's our undying, unfading hope of our salvation. So the author ends this portion by addressing them, beloved. It's the only time he uses such endearing word in the whole book. So this is not a rebuke to chastise the audience, but a rebuke to awaken them, a rebuke to call them out, to say, look, Christ is better. 
even then falling away. He says, Beloved, I am convinced, assured of the better things of salvation. That's God's love, his faithfulness, and his power to sustain you. Not because they're good or because they're worthy, but because God is good and he is just. He sees their efforts and does not forget. Even in our fallibility, he considers our works. And he says, we desire that every one of you will show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Let us have haste and diligence. We should not dilly-dally. We shouldn't not wait. There is no time to lose. We're not on this earth forever, and we don't know when Christ will return. So don't be lazy to do good. We should not remain infants waiting to be spoon-fed the gospel. But grow up and seek to be mature. Exercise our likeness of God to reason the difficult things. See through the false veneer of the world. And move on from our childish ways. Just as we see a desire to see our children grow up and cast aside their pouting and their tantrums, we too must cast aside our pouting and our tantrums. Consider and practice consistently and constantly so that we're not blinded by the reasons of the world. Know what are the ways of God from the ways of man. Because when we do these things, not only are we exercising our mental capacities, but we reinforce the full assurance of hope we have in Christ of our salvation. It is not merely an intellectual exercise, but a spiritual exercise that girds up our faith. It perfects our faith for what is to come. I love the song, <clears throat> Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I believe it goes very well with this message in Hebrews. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we fully drink from the cup of grace, and partake in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we see the truth of the deep love of God, his immeasurable grace and mercy, and the final consummation with Christ in his kingdom as part of our better things of salvation. So let us build a better habit of drawing near to Christ and seek his comfort rather than on things that harm us physically and mentally, and spiritually that seeks to separate us from God and destroy us eternally. I use a football metaphor. It's a very loose metaphor at the beginning of the sermon. Whereas these football teams, they experience loss and a losing season or whatever. <clears throat> we, on the other hand, we will never experience defeat. Because Christ has won for once and for all. We don't have to muster up a, faith, uh, a hope year over year 
Our hope is never fading. It never disappoints us. The struggles and the challenges we face, God is there. Sometimes we will experience going backwards, but God is there. And in the end, there will be more occasions when, when we see fruit. Again, Christ is already victorious. He is our triumphant king, and he is just as victor and conqueror, and in him we have an unfailing hope. So let us look to Christ and allow the things of the world to fade away. Let us pray.